January 6th was, for me, a horrific day. It was the day when I saw that the confluence of nascent fascism, ethnic and religious hatred, and the rise of a sort of pseudo-state media, composed of Fox, OAN, and cadres of right-wing podcasters, radio provocateurs, YouTube influencers, and other content generators, fully blossom into a direct attack on our republic and the rule of law. I've been predicting that my country would go fascist ever since I read Wilhelm Reich's book, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, when I was 15. Reich wrote the book in Germany in the 30s, and although it may be dated in some respects now, and to me paints a somewhat incomplete picture of the roots of authoritarianism, even as a teenager in 1975, I still saw much in it that resembled my America, including the repression of healthy sexuality replaced with unhealthy, often violent or coercive sexual and militaristic imagery. Perhaps the most important point of the book of all was that Reich understood why people will support policies, parties, and individuals that go against their interests. If the repression of healthy human desires and interactions is coupled with the replacement of those desires with the fetishization of violence and the lionization of the military, you're halfway to an authoritarian state. If you then foster a fear of the other, the stranger, those that are in some way different within a segment of the populace, you will have many people in the palm of your hand begging for a strong man to save them from the boogeyman you've created. Add to that a full-fledged resentment at the advantages these others have supposedly been granted, and you can foment pogroms, ethnic cleansing, holocausts to your heart's content. Lyndon Johnson, the president who, after Lincoln, did the most to advance black civil rights in this country, rather adroitly summed up the state of affairs when he said, quote, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you, end quote. The tribal nature of humanity has its roots in survival behavior, but alas, this aspect of human nature is easily manipulated to promote inhumane, even genocidal behavior. One has only to look at many of the holocausts in human history to see how fear and resentment of the other was used as the catalyst for the most barbaric behavior. It's the leitmotif of human history. From the beginning of it, all the way to the Armenian Genocide, to Auschwitz, to Srebrenica, to Rwanda, to what is currently happening to the Rohingya and the Uyghurs in Myanmar and China, respectively. It's a terrible thread that binds us throughout human history. So as a citizen, and probably also as a Jew, I'd watch the anti-Semitic marches and the synagogue and mosque attacks with increasing anxiety. But I had also calmed myself with the rationalization that the players were likely marginalized, poor, uneducated, white, trailer-trashed, gun-nut crazies, a tiny minority. But on January 6th, I had to face facts. Regular folks, including many well-educated, middle-class, and wealthier white-collar folks, people who'd purported to support law and order and the police, turned into a savage, homicidal mob. I finally stared the real possibility of the end of the American experiment in freedom and democracy in the face. Let's dispatch with this first. Yes, I know the United States is not a true democracy. I despise the electoral college system, and I think the framers knew exactly what they were doing when they formulated the tortured governmental structures laid out in the Constitution. They wanted the great unwashed to have very limited say at best in how the country was run. And even there, those severely constrained great unwashed only included white men, not women and people of color. 
So yes, America has never been what our more liberal self-delusions have painted it to be. It's never been a true land of liberty. Not when people opposing the draft or trying to form unions have been thrust into jails merely for what they've written and spoken. And not when the power of the state, the fist, comes out of its velvet glove, as I've witnessed countless times in the brutality of police and National Guard at many demonstrations from the casual brutalization of those that opposed the Vietnam War to savage military-style assaults on unarmed Occupy and BLM protesters. I make no bones about it. The police, the National Guard, the state itself are far more concerned with the preservation of capital and order than with liberty and justice for all. But still, America has been a place where you could say and do a lot of things you couldn't say and do in many other parts of the world. And perhaps more importantly, the idea of America its aspiration to be a shining beacon of freedom has at times inspired people all over the world, from Czechoslovakia to Hong Kong. But this fat, lazy, contented form of self-delusion, this consensual land of liberty con job, fell apart utterly for me on January 6th. Not only was a howling mob ready to stage a coup, they were calling for the murder and rape and torture of anyone who in any way was perceived as an enemy of their great leader, and the hyper-vigilant forces of law and order, so overwhelming during the summer of Black Lives Matter, were barely present at all. What drove these people, many with much to lose, to become a crazed mob baying for blood? What caused these people to ransack one of the most sacred temples of our imperfect democracy, stealing, breaking, defacing, and covering its halls and offices with urine and feces? This extreme behavior would have been unthinkable to poor, naive, liberal me when Trump announced he was running for office. I knew the man was a deeply damaged and deeply dangerous human being, but I never guessed he could break our institutions, shred them into ineffectual pieces in four short years. I also never could have guessed that within days and weeks of January 6th, Republicans whose lives had been in serious jeopardy on that day would be denying the gravity of what had happened, comparing an event that killed several people and injured many more, a day when law and order completely broke down and mobs were roaming the halls baying for Pence's blood and AOC's body, to a normal tourist day at the Capitol. Since then, it's become clear to me that the Republican Party is all in on a legalistic coup, a fascist takeover not unlike strongman Viktor Orban's bloodless coup in Hungary. But what about the rank and file? What about those great unwashed? How is it that, with ample video and other evidence to the contrary, many Republicans believe that January 6th was a false flag operation mounted by something resembling secret Maoist Antifa cells. How is it that others believe that essentially nothing happened, that it was a calm, non-violent day with protesters, as Trump stated, hugging the police? More to the point, how does the massive cognitive dissonance of Trump simultaneously claiming the day was peaceful and wonderful while all the while fulminating about the indecent murder of crazed protester Ashley Babbitt sustain itself? How can such internally inconsistent fallacies prevail? How can people believe two contradictory things at once, especially when both of them are utterly disproven by video evidence? And how has this logical disconnect led to a state of affairs where a majority of Republicans now believe in the big lie and that violence may be necessary to save America? Rationality is like a religion for me. It gives the world a little order, masks its inherent random messiness with a sheen of sanity, gives me comfort the way the promise of an afterlife gives others comfort. But rationality doesn't seem to matter much, and this is true as much on the left as it is on the right, though we on the left often refuse to acknowledge that to ourselves and others. 
Rationality doesn't work because of human phenomena, like confirmation bias, where we essentially find arguments that support our existing beliefs more attractive and seek them out while ignoring or minimizing those that contradict or argue against our beliefs. And rationality is seemingly impotent as a force for positive social change because of an even more pernicious and depressing phenomenon, which is called belief perseverance. What is belief perseverance? It is the paradoxical tendency of many people, perhaps all people in certain situations, to not only disregard inconvenient facts, but to actively double and triple and quadruple down when faced with things they simply don't want to believe. Belief perseverance essentially causes people to be less open to dissenting or contradictory facts than they were before they were presented with those facts. Think about how fucked up that is. The more information you are given that quarrels with your worldview, the harder you dig in and the more calcified your worldview becomes. It's like an up is down looking glass world of logic, where the more rational, logical information you're given, the less rational and logical you become, and facts that contradict your beliefs end up reinforcing your beliefs. This is a nightmare scenario for someone like me, who believes that rational discourse is the only barrier to barbarity and collective insanity. Is my bulwark really quicksand? Is my god made of clay? When I speak rational things backed up with objective science, am I actually furthering irrationality? And if so, what is rational discourse for? Perhaps for some vanishingly small segment of humanity that not only likes inconvenient facts, but actually enjoys having its beliefs challenged and its mind changed upon occasion? There are a great many examples in our present-day life that show the power of confirmation bias and belief perseverance. From climate change denial to the refusal of many to countenance the unfairness of trans women athletes competing against biological women athletes in sports, the subject of my last podcast. But the topper on this grim anniversary is, of course, the big lie. The idea that Donald Trump was re-elected and the election was stolen from him. Of course, elections may have been stolen in the past, John F. Kennedy's crucial win of the Electoral College votes of Illinois was perhaps the result of widespread voter fraud perpetrated by the Chicago Democratic machine. And many, including myself, think that George Bush's win over Al Gore, wherein the U.S. Supreme Court, replete with justices intimately involved in Bush's campaign and lifelong friendships with Dick Cheney, not only failed to recuse themselves, but actually overruled the Florida State Supreme Court and essentially forced Florida to accept Bush as the winner, is also similarly fishy. And oh, how conveniently the GOP failed to support states' rights in that case, gleefully applauding federal overreach. But the big lie is special, truly special, because so many, many facts argue so eloquently against any possibility of believing in it. Facts like this. One, over 60 court cases alleging major election fraud were thrown out many thrown out by judges appointed by Donald Trump. Many of these judges issued scathing decisions deriding the pathetic quality of the allegations, wild speculation and conspiracy theories rather than anything factual entered as evidence. Two, down-ballot Republicans from senators and congresspeople on down to local offices fared far better than Trump, indicating that he, not the Republican Party, was the problem for many moderate Republicans and especially for independents. Three, the Democrats were crushed in the House, almost losing it. Four, the Democrats fared almost equally badly in their Senate races, eventually eking out a pallid, Pyrrhic victory. 
five in Maricopa County, Arizona, the Republican County recorder who defeated a sitting Democrat for that position in the 2020 election defended both that Democrat's handling of the election and the certification of those election results. He and the committee of Maricopa County officials investigating the election and the absurdly partisan and comically inept Cyber Ninjas investigation into it reasserted yesterday that the election there was free and fair. Let's think of the amazing fourth-dimensional chess the Democrats would have had to have played if any of the big lie were true. They'd have to be so clever that they could pressure Trump's own judges to fold— They'd have to be so clever in manipulating different voting systems across the country that they could split ballots so that down-ballot Republicans would perform better than Trump. In other words, they'd actually help elect down-ballot Republicans while gaming the system against the fearless leader. And in order to do that, they'd have to kill the election and re-election chances of some of their own. All in order to what? To almost lose control of the House of Representatives? And, of course, they'd also have to lose almost every Senate race they ran, only to leave two hanging by thread, in order to end up with a Senate so evenly split that their ability to govern is seriously impaired by a few craven, bought-and-paid-for Democratic senators. I mean, folks, if you have the power to steal the presidency, why not take the House and the Senate with it big time? The big lie is impossible for anyone who rationally scrutinizes its internal inconsistencies to believe— but it doesn't matter. Just like decades and decades of data on climate change don't matter. Just like any facts that disagree with most people's worldview, not only don't sway them towards an objective reality, but instead propel them farther into their fantasies. Think it's only true on the right? Well, what do conservatives say about climate change? That big money scientific institutions and the mainstream media are behind this thing they call a hoax. And what do many left-wingers say about the myth that vaccines cause autism? that big money pharma and the mainstream media are behind this thing they call a hoax. Both use the argument that shadowy forces, moneyed interests, are promulgating a fake narrative, and that the real information, the truth, is out there among the febrile, paranoid masses posting on Facebook and making incoherent videos on YouTube. Of course, none of this is helped by the fact that the tobacco, sugar, petroleum, and other industries have funded a lot of skewed science to support their lies over and over. Given this state of affairs... It's not irrational to distrust the system, but it is irrational to hang on to an opinion on subjects where some objective truths can be discerned. And then we have QAnon, which I call the Protocols of the Elders of Zion 2.0, which has infected both the right and the left. On the left, particularly the New Agey wellness community, a community that was primed to believe its lies as this community is already rightfully suspicious of mainstream medicine as practice in the USA, and so is very vulnerable to both quack medicine and conspiracy theories. I know because I am actually part of this community, though the rare member of it who's also a science geek. So a version of QAnon that we call pastel QAnon has merged with anti-vax lies and COVID fear inside this community, and it has become a hotbed of the most tortured conspiracy theories, including the big lie and QAnon. The slick, well-produced QAnon YouTube videos promoting this odious, anti-Semitic, anti-democratic fever dream connect the most tenuous of dots— for example, that a design motif on the Rachel Maddow set resembles a motif in ephibophile Jeffrey Epstein's house. These videos should be laughable, 
They're the digital equivalent of the cliche paranoid conspiracy theorists' wall of pictures and documents, leavened with cherry-picked coincidences, all connected with red strings, a spider's web of incoherence and paranoia, clearly the product of a diseased and obsessed mind. But no, it's on the internet. It's got cool, ominous music. It's got videos and purported documents and photos and an avalanche of, quote, facts, unquote, so it must be true. These videos that I find risably stupid and incoherent are taken by others as gospel. And not all of these gullible fools are uneducated gap-toothed trailer trash. A lot of them are Ivy League graduates and far more successful financially than I and many of you are. I sit with my mouth agape, beset by tortured wonderment, bemused at all the bullshit people all over the political spectrum believe, and I am powerless to do anything about it. I can't move the needle, for, I suspect, 99% of the populace is immune to inconvenient facts, and that, ironically, these facts are merely a catalyst for more irrationality. And I wonder at the irony of the internet itself. This thing that democratized free speech like nothing before it has been the greatest force in history for fomenting anti-democratic changes, reinforcing autocracies, and generating ethnic cleansing and hate crimes. Things are so batshit crazy, angry, and polarized, ever stoked by this democratized vomitorium of disinformation, that I predict a fascist takeover through legalistic means, or an outright military takeover, or a civil war in America within this decade. I'm sitting here wondering if I'm like the Jews in the 30s in Europe, who placated themselves with rationalizations as Germany metastasized into a fascist death machine. I'm wondering whether it's time to leave the country of my birth, the country whose best aspirations resonated so well with my own philosophies. While its odious manifest destiny, its history of barbaric slavery and genocide, its denial of evil done in its name, its smug assertions of exceptionalism have also long disgusted and repelled me. But I love this country, and it may be time to go. Maybe the founders were right. Maybe the great unwashed are too damn dangerous. Maybe, except that the super-educated uber-rich have led this planet into a new mass extinction event that threatens the Earth's ability to sustain human life. In other words, they're well-educated, more capable, powerful, and wealthy, but just as irrational, driven by greed instead of paranoia, power instead of their ire at their powerlessness, the other side of the same malignant coin. But rich and insulated, they're still ignoring or denying any facts that get in the way of their pursuit of more and more money and power. One need only look at the absurd Hyperloop concept that narcissist Elon Musk proposes with a straight face as a blueprint for the future of transportation. A worldwide network of vacuum tunnels that would be incalculably expensive to build, impossible to maintain, and easily destroyed with minimal effort by amateur terrorists. Or look at how Fox News heedlessly continues to throw gasoline on the big lie, pushing us ever closer to civil war or a so-called legal coup. They're happy to trade democracy for more viewers and more dollars. Or look at new developments in AI, including the U.S. military's plans to give autonomous vehicles the ability to launch lethal attacks on their own. I mean, haven't any of these macho technologists and apparatchiks watched the Terminator movies? Or the experiments being done to reanimate ancient viruses and bacteria and to heedlessly alter genetic sequencing using an amazing and amazingly dangerous technology called CRISPR. Or look at the collective yawn over the fate of the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica, the so-called Doomsday Glacier that is going to slide into the sea, 
raising sea levels by over three feet, not in hundreds of years, but quite possibly in the next decade or two. 40% of the U.S. population lives within five miles of the coast. Most harbors, refineries, airports, food and human transportation hubs may be underwater well within our lifetimes. But such news is swiftly elbowed out of the way by Kanye or Kim and the entire odious, pathetic culture of celebrity, the devout worship of narcissists and narcissism. The list goes on and on, and it all reminds me of famed physicist Enrico Fermi's theory as to why we could find no evidence of intelligent life in the universe. He speculated that all, or at least the vast majority, of civilizations in the universe that reach a technological level that enables them to engage in attempts at interstellar communication soon kill themselves off through warfare and or technological developments, whether those be technologies that ruin the biosphere or those that create lethal artificial intelligence or those that create or recreate lethal biological life. Fermi said, in effect, that we're too damn smart for our own good, or perhaps, as I've heard tell, Einstein said it better. I can't seem to find the precise quote, but the gist was that if we don't become as good at empathy and long-term thinking as we are at making tools and technology for short-term gratification and profit, we are doomed. We humans are so clever, but we are not wise. We are short-sighted and seemingly most often motivated by tribalism and greed. The lunatics are running the asylum in the halls of Congress, in corporate conference rooms, in media moguls' offices, all the way down to the local school board, where puffed-up mini-fascists preen during their 15 minutes of fame as they compare, of all things, being forced to put a square of fabric over their faces during the greatest health crisis in a century, to being loaded into cattle cars on the way to being gassed at Auschwitz. These people have no idea what true tyranny is. And oddly enough, they seem to have no problem with other equally tyrannical rules like the ubiquitous no shirt, no shoes, no service signs we've all seen all over America for decades and decades. There is no such thing as cognitive dissonance for them. They aren't intelligent and introspective enough to generate it or detect it. My religion has failed. I can't offer bromides and platitudes because the truth is too stark. Most people I know, on the left and on the right, cannot be swayed by facts, logic, and civil discourse. As for me, I am sure I have my blind spots and confirmation biases too. I'm sure, and it worries me. I am not reassured by how sure I am about some things. <laughs> Rather, I am often unsettled, which is why I'm overjoyed when I do change my mind. It's a relief to know that if presented with new and irrefutable information, I can change my mind. Maybe not all the time, I mean, they don't call them blind spots for nothing, but at least some of the time. Maybe if we can all learn to celebrate being wrong, the world could become a saner place. Maybe we'd have a chance to keep on creating the wonderful things that humans make. Art that inspires, science that saves lives and reveals the secrets of nature, babies that thrill us as they learn to smile and love. Thanks for listening. The Cognitive Dissident is written, recorded, voiced, mixed, and produced by me, Samuel Claiborne, for Disreputable Media. The music for this episode came from my release of improvised piano music called The Annunciation, which is available in CD versions and for streaming and digital purchase all over the place. Please visit thedailyscreamer.com for more content. 
And please like and subscribe to this podcast and consider donating to our Patreon fund to help us continue the work of questioning assumptions, slaughtering sacred cows, and calling out nude emperors. Thanks for listening. <laughs>